Good morning. morning. And let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your blessings, for your character of love, for the way you've designed your universe to run. We thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask your spirit and your presence to be with us today. In your holy name, amen. I got this in the mail from, uh, was sent to my publisher and they forwarded it on to me. It says, Dear Dr. Jennings, I've been reading The uh, God-Shaped Brain and I uh, and I already know I will read it, reread it and copy info from it to share with the women in prison I share with. I had to stop for a second, say thank you so much. I live remotely. I have no internet, so I'm sending this to your publisher. I will be trying to find your other book mentioned, Could It Be This Simple? I feel so helped as I've been stuck in ways and feel those strongholds breaking with the help this book has given me. You are doing the Lord's work, and I praise and bless you and thank University Press for publishing you. So I thought that was nice and was sent in old style. Old style. Okay, and then I have an announcement I've been waiting a long time to make. I want to introduce somebody. Francesca, come on up. And Francesca is the first employee of Come and Reason Ministry. She is our executive director. And she is, uh, yep. And we are very, very happy to have Francesca. And uh, Francesca Costerison. But I understand the name is going to be changing this fall. Yeah, this fall I'll be getting married. I've been waiting a long time for that. <laughs> and, and so in this fall she's going to become... Brewster. Tell us a little about your background. I graduated from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga with a degree in communication. And, um, but shortly after working with Dr. Jennings at his office, I was applying to go to Japan to teach just to see what the world was like. Um, from I'm from Alabama, and it was a big deal to come to Chattanooga, so I wanted to get out. <laughs> so after Japan, we moved to China, and I, I met my future husband. And you've been in Japan and China for the last four years. So coming back, and a lot of international experience, communication experience. And, and so she will be the person, if you pick up the phone and call our number or, or start sending emails and stuff, uh, she's going to be interacting and helping to organize our ministry. And hopefully we will be, be able to do some more productive things here in the near future. So keep Francesca in your prayers. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Please mm-hmm. call our email. <laughs> okay, thank you. And her email, for anybody who wants to know, is Francesca at ComeAndReason.com. So if you want to get a hold of her. Following up briefly from last week's class, remember we talked last week about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and what that might mean. Somebody emailed me, uh, the listener, online this week with these Bible texts that were put together in a book called Prophets and Kings, and they were strung together by the author of Prophets and Kings. And here are the texts. It says, Wisdom is the, prin- is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all... Uh, and with with all thy getting, get understanding, Proverbs 4, 7. And the next, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Psalms 111, uh, 10. And then, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, Proverbs eight thirteen. So, I think this is very confirming of what we were talking about last week, in addition to all the evidence we gave that when the perfect love casts out fear, that the Bible does not teach the fear of the Lord is to be afraid of him. It is actually to come to know him so well and you love his character and method so much that you actually hate evil. You hate the things of arrogancy and pride, the things that are destructive that violate his design for life. And that's what it means to have the fear of the Lord, not to be in terror of him. So I thought it was a really good uh, addition to what we talked about last week. And so let's move on to our lesson this week. We're doing uh, lesson number 12 in the role of the church in the community. And the title is Urban Ministry in the End Times. 
And the first paragraph says, the three angels' messages call for the gospel to be preached to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Thus, wherever people live, the message must be brought to them. And because so many now live in the cities, the cities to the cities we must go. Can someone tell me what the three angels' message is? What is the message of the three angels' messages? God, love of God, character of God. Here's a description from one of the founders of our, our church. It's found in Christ's Triumphant, page 338. The proclamation of the first and second and third angels' messages has been located by the word of inspiration. The first and second messages were given in 1843 and 1844, and we are now under the proclamation of the third. But all three of the messages are still to be proclaimed. It is just as essential now as ever before that they shall be repeated to those who are seeking for the truth. By pen and voice, we are to sound the proclamation showing their order and the application of the prophecies that bring us to the third angel's message. There cannot be a third without a first and a second. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the spring of water. This message, if heeded, will call the attention of every nation and kindred and tongue and people to a close examination of the word and to the true light in regard to the power that has changed the seventh-day Sabbath to the spurious Sabbath. The Sabbath memorial declaring who the living God is, the creator of the heaven and the earth, has been torn down and a spurious Sabbath has been given to the world in its place. Thus a breach has been made in the law of God. In the first angel's message, people are called upon to worship God, our creator, who made the world and all things therein. The message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven is the everlasting gospel, the same gospel that was declared in Eden. So, pause. What do you hear? I'm wondering, as you hear this, are you being influenced by tradition and the way the Adventist church historically will take writings like this and, and tell you it means a certain thing? Or are you filtering it through design law and hearing something else? What do you hear is being said? Where was that from? This is Christ Triumphant, page 338. Okay, so first question. Are we now in the time of the three angels? Yes. Oh, I tricked you guys. <laughs> or are we in the time of the fourth angel? Do you know what the fourth angel is? Revelation 18, 1 through 3. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen. And has become the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And from Maranatha 173, Ellen White writing, the three angels' messages are to be combined, giving their threefold light to the world. In Revelation, John says, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. This represents the giving of the last and threefold message of warning to the world. Revelation 18 points to the time when, as a result of rejecting the threefold warning of Revelation 14, 6 through 12, the church will have fully reached the condition foretold by the second angel, and the people of God, still in Babylon, will be called upon to separate from her communion. This message is the last that will ever be given to the world, and it will be accomplished, and it will accomplish its work. When those 
that believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness shall be left to receive strong delusion and to believe a lie. Then the light of truth will shine upon all, all those whose hearts are open to receive it. And then out of Christ Trumpet 350. The light that we have upon the third angel's message is the true light. The mark of the beast is exactly what it's been proclaimed to be. All in regard to this matter has not yet, is not yet understood and will not be understood until the unrolling of the scroll, but a most solemn work is to be accomplished in our world. So what do you hear? What do you hear being said here? This is what I heard, is that in the 19th century, the first, second, and third angel's message was given. In the 19th century. Over 100 years ago. But, and that was described in Revelation 14. But Revelation 18 describes that Another angel comes, meaning another group of people arise to repeat the message of those angels to be given one time, but this time the message is not given, here's the first angel, here's the second, and then a period of time we finally get to the third. It is a combined message that it's cohesive and it's all together with, it says all in regard to this matter is not yet understood, with new understanding, with new insight that was never presented before. That's what I hear is going on. So what is the message for today? And I'm going to share some ideas that I think might be this integrated message with new insight that we've never heard before. Anybody want to? The first, second, and third are about God's character. We talk about the description of God's character of love and then with the Babylonian, with the Babylon system of chaos and the third one being, here's the consequences if you walk one way. And that particular presentation has been given for over 100 years. But what law lens has it been presented through historically? Here. The, the imposed law lens. And, 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 when the, and that first, I'm going to go back to that first quote. That first quote said the following. And I want you to notice. It says, uh, we'll call attention to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people to close examination of the word and to the true light in regard to the power that changed the seventh day Sabbath to the spurious Sabbath. The attention is drawn to the power that changed it. However, most Adventists read this and they say attention is drawn to the change of the Sabbath. That's how most people read this. That we, that there's been a breach in the law and where our attention is drawn to the change in the law. That is not what is actually said. What is actually said is our attention is drawn to the power that changed the law. Now what is the power that changed the law? It's imperialism. It's an imposed law construct. It's this idea that God's law functions no different than the types of laws you and I make. It's operating at level four moral development, that you've got a rule, and if you break a rule, justice requires the ruling authority, investigate, um, make, make a judgment, a determination, and then once the judgment is made, inflict the proper punishment for that. This has infected the entire Christian world, and the first and second and third angel's messages originally given by our church was given through the same law lens, and they come back and they say, and if you got the wrong day, then you're gonna get, you're gonna be judged, and you're gonna be found to have worshiped on the wrong day, which means you broke the rule, and you didn't keep the rule that was given and therefore God will punish you because you have the mark of the beast. This is very, very, in other words, this is not the message of the three angels when it's given that way. It's presenting the same dictator God who was presented in the beastly system. And you know what makes the system beastly? Think how do beasts work? How do beasts work? 
Coercion, force, they tear, they shred, do it my way or else. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. What method? Coercion, coercive pressure. And thus when we present God as a God who says, worship me or I'll be forced by holiness and righteousness to punish you and ultimately kill you and torture you before I kill you, then you're presenting God as the beast. It is only when we come back to see, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, worship the designer, the creator, and understand that God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher. His laws are the protocols upon which reality is built. The, the predominant one, God is love, and he's created everything to operate on the protocols of love, the principle of giving. Every breath you take, remember, give away carbon dioxide to the plants. Plants give back oxygen to you. A never-ending circle of giving upon which life is actually constructed. These are God's laws, and there's so many of them. We're not going to go into all today, but they're all design protocols. And every breach of one of his laws is destructive to the person who breaks the law. And thus, God is always in the business of reaching out to those who are out of harmony with his design and working with them to bring them back in harmony, to heal, to set right. What's another word for setting right? Justification or atonement, putting at one again. That's right. These, but, but we, when we see it through the imposed law construct, atonement means appeasement. Justification means paying the legal penalty, being declared to be right, even though you're still not right. And you create these, these, um, these arbitrary constructs that, that don't bring peace, they keep us afraid of God. And so we have a God who is the judge looking out to find everything that's wrong with us. And, and if we don't have somebody standing between us and God to protect us from him, then he's going to use his power to torture us and kill us in the end. And that doesn't bring peace. That doesn't bring reconciliation. That brings division. So here's how I see the three angels' messages. First angel. God is our creator, designer, the builder of reality. His laws are the laws upon which reality function. We are to give glory to him, be in awe of him, as we really see how his, his character is built right into nature. Romans 1.20, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We, as we see that and comprehend it, we are so overwhelmed as we see these protocols and our minds are open to it that we give him glory by revealing his character of love in the way we live our lives. Um, and being healed into his likeness because the time has come in human history for people to make a right judgment about God. The hour of his judgment, the hour in which people are going to discern and say God is not like Satan. He's not this imperial dictator. He's not this beastly being. God is like Jesus revealed him to be. And that's why the remnant are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen my father. Okay, that's the testimony Jesus gave. Okay, so the time has come in human history for people to make a right judgment about God. Romans chapter 3, 4, God, Paul writes, God, may you be proved right when you are judged. When is that going to happen? At this time in human history, when the, under the, the message of the fourth angel of Revelation 18, when the message is given again in its cohesive, integrated perspectives through the design law lens. That's the first angel. Second angel. The other churches and religions, not just churches, religions of the world are falling into a system of imperialism, imposed law, arbitrary rules, legal theologies, punishing God, just like Babylon. That's the system of Babylon. It's a system that doesn't make sense. It's confusing. It's contradictory. God is love. Here's the God is love. He loves you so much, he, want, he, he sent a son to die for you. But if you don't love him, he'll burn you in hell forever. Contradictory. It's, not, it's nonsense. It doesn't make sense. This, this, is, this is what we see all the time. The system has fallen. And it is this power, the power of imposed law, that changed the Sabbath. They went into committee. 
And they declared a different day to be the holy day than the day that was designed. You see, and, and that is prima facie evidence that God's entire law, his design law of love, has been set aside and replaced with the human law construct. Why? When was the last time a church committee got together and voted to change the law of gravity or the law of respiration? So it would be so convenient on bad, bad uh, you know, pollution days in Southern California that Loma Linda could vote when the, when the pop pollution levels get to a certain level. On those days, all Adventists don't have to breathe. <laughs> they will suspend that law. Well, you can't do it, can you? That's ridiculous. So what would it mean if a church does vote to change God's law? They don't see it as design law. They see it simply as an imperial a system of rules like our laws, which means God has been degraded from creator position to dictator position. That's the fallen Babylon system. This is the issue. What God do we serve? A God who creates and whose laws are the design protocols? Or a God who's a dictator, whose laws are different than human laws and coercively enforces? And this is what the Sabbath is a sign of. Remember, it's a memorial of creatorship. First angel, call back to worship him who made. It calls us back to recognize that his laws are the, are the protocols by which all life operate. And then, third angel, and those who reject the God who is love and his law of love and prefer the beastly methods of a human-imposed law construct with coercive power and thus mark themselves in their minds by believing and promoting the methods of coercion or mark themselves in their hands by their works of coercing others to their way of religion, ultimately die of their terminal and unhealed condition, regardless of which day they worship on. A third angel. It would be horrible. Any thoughts about that? Yeah. So isn't putting fear on someone a form of coercion? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. Are you being coerced? Well, no. If you are approaching the edge of a, of a cliff, and the closer you walk to the edge of the cliff, you become aware and you become anxious and afraid of stepping over the edge, are you being coerced? Your fear is going up. Are you being coerced? So if you, if you become aware of um, a, uh, um, let's say we have some juice, some punch, and somebody put a toxin in it, some type of a toxin, a poison, radio, radioactive material, and if you drink it, you'll die, and you're afraid to drink it, are you being coerced? So there's a, there's a place for fear, but, but under the design law, it's never coercive. It's fear of the actual consequence of deviating from the way life is, is designed to operate. So go on, your comment. So my question was, uh, some fear, I guess, is good. And there's emergency measures that are put in, and you guess, and still fear to save somebody. Where I'm going with, when we have weaker prayers, I see. whatever that... If you don't do this, kids, you're going to burn, and it's going to be painful. You know, you may be martyred, but you've got to serve God. Be on fire for Him. But it's this whole dichotomy of yes. When, when the fear is arbitrary and co- yes, fear can be used coercively. Uh, if you don't do this, you will be punished. Okay, that can be coercive, and that and that then is, is a beastly way to approach it. But if you teach people how life actually operates, and there is fear of sin itself. Fear, for instance, are you afraid to step out on I-75 in heavy fog uh, uh, and stand there in the interstate? Yeah, yes, I hope you, hope you would be. Are you being coerced? Is that coercive? Well, no, that, that's wisdom because that would be a foolish thing to do because you're taking yourself out of uh, tolerance with the, with the you know, l- limits of your body's ability to handle stress and so forth. Okay, You'll be destroyed there. 
um, that, that type of fear I don't think is coercive. If we teach them, that's why it happens. But on the other hand, if you say, now if you step out on I-75, you know, God's got a recording angel who's going to keep track of you, and then he's going to use his power to inflict pain and suffering upon you. He'll make you suffer for that. See, that becomes coercive and beastly. That's the difference. And so that's the, again, the two law lenses. Do you see very clearly design law and the three angels' messages? I've never heard the three angels' messages presented by our church through design law. Have you? And that's the, that's the, the Revelation 18 message. That's what we're to be taking to the world. Yes? The message about the first, second, third uh, message was written before Constantine converted. So how is the third angel's message related to the four Gospels at their time? Okay, we'll come, we'll come to that because um, let, let's move on to the next paragraph. And, and I think that, that question will weave into where we're going. It's a good question. Um, next paragraph, it says, uh, it's actually Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, cities bring together many different cultures, ethnic groups, um, languages, and religions. Traditionally, each group has its quarter or defined territory. Increasingly, all kinds of people live next door to one another through metropolitan regions. The multicultural reality creates risk and complexity, but it also provides great opportunity for the gospel. There is greater tolerance for new ideas and greater willingness to listen to new religions and often exist in more tr- than traditional settings uh, outside the cities. I thought, uh, and it goes on, the city could provide access to many people who would otherwise never hear about the Seventh-day Adventist message. I thought about that, and I go, really? Um, that, that's stated pretty, like, black and white. And I thought, do you think there's greater tolerance for new religious ideas in Mecca, in Tehran? What do you think? I think not. I think, in fact, it's against the law. If you went there and started, on the, started trying to have an evangelistic series in Mecca or in Tehran, you're probably going to be at least arrested, if not executed. So this idea that just because it's a city, you have greater tolerance, that's not true. I think the culture is what causes the tolerance, not not the fact that it's simply a city. Yes, Wendell? Often we are more isolated in cities. We we cocoon ourselves within our houses more in the city than we are in in a more open environment. Okay, there's truth in that too. Many people in the cities never eat, they just, yeah, exactly. Um, Then it talks about the message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church going to the world. Does the corporate... SDA Church take a message to the world that is different than the message found in any other evangelical church. Does it? Not lately. If and I'm going to say, if you say yes, how? How is it different? Oh, well, we have a health message, and many of those don't. That's different. So if you leave, so so is the Adventist health message a mechanism to salvation? Is the health message the primary message that the Christian church was called to give? No, it wasn't. We have the Sabbath. Is Seventh-day Sabbath keeping a mechanism for salvation? Is, and is Seventh-day Sabbath keeping exclusive to the Seventh-day Adventist church or the other Christian groups that keep Seventh-day Sabbath too? So was the Seventh-day Adventist church founded to take a picture of God to the world and his law to the world that is different than found in every other religion, including other Christian churches. Yes, and I think I summed it up a moment ago that the primary purpose was to call people back to worship him who made the creator, the design law. That's the primary message that God is like Jesus revealed him to be, the creator of reality and deviation from his, his laws are destructive. Thus, we are dead in trespass and sin. 
dead in trespasses and we are not under condemnation of illegal authority and God becomes the source of inflicted death. That's what penal substitution teaches. God is the source of death and he, and he inflicts it upon you. So under that view, you could, here's the devil speaking. God, hey, God, I never said God wasn't powerful. Of course God's all powerful. I've, I've never denied that. What, I, what I've said is, as, as a light to the universe, this is the devil speaking, of course, claiming to be a light, is that God isn't good and he's not trustworthy. That, 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 that if, if he would just get some anger management classes, get his wrath under control, that we could live for all eternity in sin because there's nothing wrong with sin, there's something wrong with a God who will kill you for it. That's penal substitution theology, level four thinking. That's traditional evangelical Christianity. God is the source of inflicted death who he, that he punishes the wicked with. Rather than the Bible teaching, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. He who sows to the carnal nature, from that nature reaps destruction. See, there's a complete difference there. And I think the Seventh-day Adventist church has become infected with the same false imperial law construct, and therefore we end up presenting the same distorted view of God as the rest of the world. To the degree that we present penal substitution theology and God's laws imposed and God inflicting punishments, we are not presenting the final message of mercy to the world. But there's a remnant group of people who have remained loyal to the testimony of Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, who have come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. They worship the creator, the designer, the builder, by not only recognizing the memorial of creation, but actually living in harmony with his design for life. And thus they give glory to him by revealing his character of love in their lives. They present the truth in love and leave others free. They never coerce. They never seek to get the governments to enforce their ways of religious beliefs on others. In the second paragraph, Paul talks the lesson talks about how Paul was kicked out of the synagogue. He taught in the synagogue until he was kicked out of the synagogue. And then it says it started a house church. Why was Paul kicked out? Was he teaching an atheism? There is no God. Why was he kicked out? Did he go in there and suggest that uh, they shouldn't respect their leaders? If I remember in Acts when he said, you just said something about the high priest, he apologized, I did not mean to offend the office of the high priest. Remember this? Was he suggesting that should, they should not respect the office of the high priest? So was his message one to undermine church authority? I, I, I know where you're going, but I want to make a distinction. He wasn't a, a politician trying to divert power. Yes, I think they did feel threatened and their power was threatened. But I want to make the point that that wasn't Paul's agenda, was it? That's not what he was trying to do. What was Paul actually doing, though? He was doing something that threatened their power. And what was he doing that threatened their power? Threatening their traditions. Their traditions and their traditional interpretations of Scripture that their authority rested on. Okay, their authority rested on the traditional, inter- which were false interpretations. Christ did the same thing; he was overthrowing their traditions constantly, and he was bringing new light to show this is the true meaning of these passages you've been applying in in appropriate ways. Does this happen today? People come with new light to overthrow traditional interpretations. 
Did the, are they met with positive receptions from church leaders? Oh, thank you. Thank you, God, for this new light. Let's move forward in light and advance in truth. Or are those individuals often kicked out like Paul was? Mm-hmm. Monday's lesson, second paragraph, states, in the city, there is more of everything, more people, more buildings, more traffic, more problems. And I think I'm probably showing my bias now as a psychiatrist at picking at this. Um, but I'm, I'm very, very attuned when I deal with my patients to thought processing and word choice because words have meaning and meaning and, and meaning has, and that has power over people. And, and it says there's more of everything in the city. More grass. More trees. More wildlife, more fresh air, more cattle, more sheep, more, more, more nature walks, more fresh air, more quiet places. Um, no, no, I, you know, I, I may be, I'm, I'm, I'd be nitpicking, I, I apologize, but, but it's, an, it's, a, it's a practice of being accurate in your thoughts and the things you tell yourself. Well, when I read that, I looked at it as there's more man-made things, which would draw people away from God, not to God. Okay, that would have been... That- there's more things of nature, more things of God. That would have been a brilliant clarification. If they would have just said there's more of everything man-made, that would have been perfect because I think that's true. There's probably more of everything man-made in the cities. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> the lesson does rightly point out that uh, the world is a hurting place, groaning under the weight of sin. Do we get numb to it? Have you ever stepped back and, and asked, how, how must God feel? You ever, you ever, when you're watching the news or the reports coming in, um, or just looking through history, reading the history of this world, and think of some of the things that have happened, the Old Testament slavery, captivity, brutality, the crucifixion of Christ, of course, the martyrs through history, the crusades, the witch trials, the holocaust, the wars, gang violence, sexual predators, trafficking of people that are going on today. Do you ever think, how God's heart must ache as he sees all of this, as he feels all of this. The thing that he created? Yes, and how, how passionately do you think he wants to put an end to all of this? Then why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? That's the question. This is a question that many people turn their backs on God. Because they look at all this pain and suffering in the world and they go, well, and these are the classic critical questions that many people have failed to find a satisfactory answer to. Either God is um, not good or he's not powerful. Because if he's all good and all powerful, then why doesn't he do something to stop this? This is classic questions. And And it's questions that are being answered, and the reason the answers are non-satisfactory, because it's being answered under human law constructs, how human beings operate. It's not being answered under design law constructs. And when you move to design law constructs, there are satisfactory answers to those questions, because God can only bring an end in harmony with restoring things to his design, because that's the only way life works. That's the only way it can happen. Revelation 14 describes... Excuse me, I think it's Revelation 17, not 14. But maybe it's 14. No, it's Revelation 14. Describes the angel from the east telling the four angels at the four corners to hold, hold, hold until a specific event happens. What's the event? And these angels, by the way, that are holding, they've been given power to harm the land and the sea and the trees. What was their power specifically? How do they harm? By letting go of what they're holding back. They, they don't inflict harm. They simply release restraint. 
And, w- and what are these four angels restraining? Principalities and powers of darkness. They're restraining Satan's power on earth. You can see a little glimpse of that in the book of Job, which we'll get to in our next quarter, when God released Satan from certain restraint. And remember in the book of Job, Satan was not restricted to harm Job. He was given freedom to access Job. He could have blessed Job with more wealth. He offered Christ all the lands of the earth, remember? He could have made Job more powerful, more wealthy. He didn't. So it's a revelation when Satan is unrestrained. What does Satan do? Satan is the destroyer. Okay, So these four angels are holding back the four winds of strife, it says, which is a, meta, is, a, is a symbolic way of Satan saying Satan's power is being restrained until an event happens. What's the event that happens and then the four winds loosen? The people are sealed. Until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. Now, in Bible terms, who are the servants of God? It's true that they will love him and have his character, but these are specific. If you actually look, servants of God, and you go through scripture over and over and over, Old Testament, New Testament, multiple places, always the servants of God are referred to as his prophets. And these are not prophets in the sense of people who prophesy future events. These are the people who speak the truth about God. These are his spokespersons. These are the ones, like Jonah, who go with a message. Okay, the servants of God who carry the message of God. That's, and they have to be sealed. And they're symbolically represented here by the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes. Symbolically representing what? People from all over the entire world. God is waiting for a group of people to be settled into the truth, both intellectually in their comprehension and understanding of reality, and spiritually in their character, the way they function, that nothing can shake them out of it. They are then sealed by the Holy Spirit, Spirit, and what's the Spirit do? It transforms and regenerates us into Christ-likeness. And once that group is sealed, settled, then it says the four winds are loosened. And when the four winds are loosened, terrible tragedies, more so than the world has ever seen, begin to happen on earth. Why? What's the purpose of that? As punishment? As some would, under imperial law, say they're being punished for the... No. Because the world is asleep. They're asleep at the wheel. They're asleep in their busyness. They're asleep in their entertainment. They're asleep in just trying to put food on the table. And when these terrible tragedies begin to happen, people wake up and go, what's happening to the world? And the witnesses who are already sealed from every culture in the world are in those cultures to stand up and say, this is what's happening. Here's the true picture of God. And if you read Revelation 14, just beyond that, a great multitude from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people surrender to God and are transformed, give up coercive and selfish ways, and have hearts that come to love God and others. They're healed in the inner person, and they're saved. This is, what, this is what's happening. Is it so, safe to say the ceiling is also the latter rain? The latter rain will accompany, uh, certainly the ceiling cannot happen with the Holy Spirit healing the hearts and minds. The Holy Spirit is what seals them. But once they're sealed, I think the latter rain is what empowers them to give their witness. Yeah. This, by the way, message, the same thing which the three angels message and all we just went through. And this will come to the question that was asked online a moment ago. And what was that question that was asked online? Say it again for us. The message about first, second, and third message was written before Constantine converted. So how is the third angel's message related to the four Gospels at, that, at their time? This message is the same message as the cleansing of the sanctuary message. And here we go. Paul in Thessalonians wrote, that a man of sin will arise, that man of perdition, who sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Paul wrote that around 60 AD. Christ had already died, Christ had already resurrected, and Christ had already ascended into heaven by the time Paul wrote that in Thessalonians. Now, when he says this man of sin will arise, this man of perdition who poses everything that is godly and sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, did this man of perdition ride up into heaven and cast Jesus off his throne in heaven? Is that what's happening? No. What temple then is this talking about? The hearts of men. The spirit temple. Know ye not that ye are a temple of God and God's spirit dwells in you? How did this man of sin set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God? By exactly that, by the conversion of Constantine and the introduction of imperialism, such that all Christian folk basically accepted this idea that God functions as an imperial dictator and operates as the source of inflicted pain and suffering. Now we are no longer worshiping the God that Jesus revealed. We're worshiping the beastly impersonator of God. He set himself up in God's temple. Thus, in Daniel, you put the things together, 2,300 years until the sanctuary shall be cleansed. 2,300 years. Looking down the corridors of time, this, this, this man of sin arises. He's going to infect God's spirit temple, having people darkened in their minds. The sanctuary is going to be corrupted by this, and a message will come at the end of time which will cleanse the sanctuary. And it corresponds perfectly with the three angels' message, the truth about God's character. We reject this imperialism, come back to worship the Creator, see Him for who He really is, and the sanctuary is cleansed. Do you understand this is kind of revolutionary stuff? Yes, yes. Right now in my class, that's Southern theology student, we're learning that, obviously, in 1844, we're learning about William Miller, that Christ moved into the most holy place. So in, in other words, that's, that's not exactly... Is that what you're saying? It's, it's more that the true picture and character of God, that's what occurred? So, this idea of moving into the most holy place is this, they are teaching symbolism with symbolism. Our goal is that all Bible metaphor, all Bible parable, all Bible symbolism is tied directly to some cosmic reality. If it's not tied to cosmic reality, it's no longer metaphor, it's fantasy. Okay? And so we have, to, we have to actually take the metaphors and symbols and translate them into reality, or else we don't understand meaning. You know uh, the famous uh, equation, E equals MC squared? Okay, E. It, it, you can see the equation, but there may be somebody in this room that has no idea what the E stands for, what the M stands for, what the C squared stands for. If you don't know what those symbols stand for, then the equation's meaningless to you. And then you could create anything. You could, you could make up stuff and put in there. Uh, e stands for excellence. M stands for maturity. And, and C stands for compassion. And if you have mature compassion, then you have excellence. I just made that up, by the way. Okay? Okay? And, and, so, and so you could put those together, and you could make that up. And you could then be teaching a whole theology based on that. And people are going to go, that, that's beautiful. That makes sense, doesn't it? Excellence. Uh, uh, but that's not what it means. E equals energy. M equals mass, C is the speed of light, and the speed of light squared times the mass equals the amount of energy in it, and that's how we, the energy that comes out of a nuclear explosion, you can see the energy in that mass is equal to the amount of mass times the speed of light squared. That's how much energy is contained in that matter. Okay, that's what it means. But you have to know what the symbols mean. Many people, when they study these questions of the sanctuary, never interpret the symbols. And so what are the real symbols? One of the, one of the errors I think that the Adventist church did, and they'll probably give you some of these quotes from the founders, they will say, after the great disappointment, the error was teaching that the sanctuary was the earth. 
That, of course, that was an error. The Bible nowhere teaches that the earth is the sanctuary. And then they go on with this logic. The Bible teaches only two sanctuaries. The symbolic tabernacle, but in Hebrews it talks about a sanctuary in heaven, a heavenly sanctuary not made with human hands. Right? And so they say, there, so at that time in 1844, there was no sanctuary on earth, the, the, the thing built in Jerusalem. So it has to be talking about the one in heaven. Problem, they ignore Corinthians. They ignore what Jesus said right before his own crucifixion when he said, destroy this temple. And in three days I will build it, I will restore it. That there was another temple on earth in 1844. Know ye not that ye are a temple. Or put Peter together. You are, you are, um, a holy priesthood being uh, um, uh, built together in a house for the Lord. Stones, okay? Being built together for the house for the Lord. There's a foundation in Ephesians that Christ is the chief cornerstone, the apostles of the foundation, and we together are being built together for a house for the Lord. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. But, we, but, there, but remember, I just read that quote, all was not yet understood. And then there's some beautiful quotes from Ellen White later in her life where she actually talked about the actual temple in heaven. She explicitly states that the temple in heaven is built out of living souls, not dead material. And that the cleaver of truth is caught cutting a people out of this earth to, to be fitted for the temple in heaven. And then when you put that together, then you get other texts that start fitting in and the puzzle starts clarifying like in Revelation and it talks about that the righteous will be a pillar in the temple of God and never will you leave it. Oh, you may not be trapped in a building for all eternity in heaven? No, you'll never leave it because no matter where you go, you're a pillar in that temple because it's, it's built from living beings. That's the temple. The temple built from living stones built together in a house for the Lord is what the scripture says. And so when you study this class at Southern, you've got to interpret it through the right lens of how reality works. There's another text in Corinthians where it talks about um, that our bodies are built not with human hands. Put that together with the Hebrew text. A temple not built with human hands. And it's about this temple that God built. God built Adam and Eve. Human hands didn't build Adam and Eve. And that's the real temple that needs to be cleansed. And thus, in 1844, what happened? It was the recovery of truth that entered into the most holy place, our deep heart, where we came to see God in his true light. And thus, he is beginning to reside again in his spirit temple, in the truest sense. This is what I think is going on. Great question. Any other questions about this? And, uh, you know, we have some stuff online where we go through the symbolism of the Old Testament sanctuary. In fact, I think I have just enough time. I'll just mention this one example. And all, all the symbolisms represent the reality of what I'm saying here. But here's one. The Ark of the Covenant, which is in the most holy place. It represents the universe fully reconciled to God again. How does it represent that? The lid on the Ark was made out of solid gold. And the lid itself 
is called the Hilasterion by Paul. It's called the Hilasterion, and Paul says Jesus is the Hilasterion in Romans chapter 3. He is the connecting link, and all heaven has is, is come together and unified in Christ. And so what do you have touching this lid in the ark? You have the two angels on there, which represent the unfallen heavenly beings touching the lid. You have the Shekinah presence of the Father touching the lid. But what do you have under the ark? Now, penal substitution theology, and you notice, the again, the confusing message they give. In if you actually look at the history of Israel, there were three things that went into the ark. By the way, the, the, the box was made out of acacia wood, which is a porous wood, completely covered in gold, so all the defects were filled in with gold. That box represents the sinners of earth, our sinful heart, that has been converted, and we become partakers of the divine nature, which is the gold, the perfect gold, and that perf- perfection of Christ fills in all our defects, and we are reconciled to Christ, and we are under his protection, if you will, and his healing the lid. Okay, three things went into this box, which represents the heart. What were the three things? Manna, rod, and what else? Ten commandments. What order did they go in? Manna came first, if you remember, in Exodus chapter 16. Jesus said, I'm the bread of heaven, which has come down from heaven. We must first partake of Jesus Christ. He reveals himself to us. We fall in love with him. We accept him. We open our hearts to him. And the second thing that goes in? No, it was the law, Exodus chapter 20. So the second thing that goes in is the law. So when we come to Christ, we partake of him, we open the heart, he writes his law on our hearts and minds, the new covenant experience, the law is next. And once the law of love, the regenerating power of Christ, his methods are written in our character again, we who were dead in trespass and sin come to life and and bring about the peaceable fruits of righteousness, Aaron's dead rod that brings forth life and gives fruit. Isn't it beautiful? You see the metaphor? This is what it means, okay? And, and, and notice the law. How many sets of law were given? Two. Two. What happened to the first set? Broke or destroyed. And which set went into the ark? The unbroken set. You will t- your theology professors will teach you that the lid covers the law which was broken, and the broken law by man is in the, lo- is in the ark, okay? And, and Christ's perfection covers the broken law. It is not the broken. There are two sets that went. If that was to be the message, the broken pieces would have gone in the ark. It is not the message. The message is a healing restoration that we partake of Christ, and he he puts his law in our hearts and minds. It is not the broken law that goes in. It is the unbroken perfection of Christ that goes in the heart. That's what goes in. But they can't get there because they're operating under level four, imperial law construct, and this is level six and seven thinking, and level four can't even comprehend level six and seven. They can only comprehend one level above, and one level above is the, is the, is the, um, the, le- the level of level five, which is level of d- doing what's best for others, l- the principle of love, and thus they accuse me of teaching level five theology, because that's all they can see, which is um, moral, influence. moral influence theory. And so they accuse me all the time of teaching moral influence theory, which God loved us so much that he came to influence us with his love back to it, and, and that's it. And there's a place for that teaching, but that's not what we teach. We teach something way beyond that. On Wednesday's lesson, it points out that we are relational beings and that to be effective, we must make it personal. We must relate and connect with others. And over the years, we've spoken a lot in this class about the law of love, the principle of giving, the other-centeredness that transcends relationships and is found in all aspects of creation. I gave you the, the respiration example. Remember the, the water cycle. The oceans give their waters to the clouds, run over the lands, lakes, rivers, and streams, and back to the ocean again, and the food cycle, and all, all this law of love built in. We see it in, in nature everywhere. But I've been thinking more about this, and I've come to realize there is yet a more powerful element of love 
the giving of ourselves, the purposeful choice to care for another, the focused, willful, good intention towards another, this love of the will, the love coming from the self, the actual real concern for another is not only part of God's healing plan, but vital to it. It is the avenue, the conduit through which God's healing love flows from God to us and out to others. So remember Jesus talking to the woman at the well about the water? What's that water symbolic of? Life. In this particular case, it's symbolic of what is the lifeblood of the universe? It's God's love. So everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again, but who drinks the water I give him will never be thirsty. Indeed, the water I give him becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what's a spring of water that wells up to? It overflows and goes out, right? Okay. This is a quotation out of uh, Councils on Health, page 31. The power of love was in all Christ's healing, and only by partaking of that love through faith can we be instruments for his work. If we neglect to link ourselves in divine connection with Christ, the current of life-giving energy cannot flow in rich streams from us to the people. What did you just hear? Is the power of love and the power of life-giving energy synonymous? Well, here's one. This is uh, also Ellen White compilation called um, Letters to Young Lovers, page 31. These are compilations that they've gone back, taken her writings and made compilations of, of some. But this, this is Ellen White. Love is power. Intellectual and moral strength are involved in this principle and cannot be separated from it. Intellectual and moral strength cannot be separated from love. The power of wealth has a tendency to corrupt and destroy. The power of force is strong to do hurt. But the excellence and value of pure love consists in its efficiency to do good, to do nothing else than good. Whatever is done out of pure love, be it ever so little or contemptible in the sight of men, is wholly fruitful. For God regards more with how much love one works than the amount he does. Love is of God. The unconverted heart cannot originate nor produce this plant of heavenly growth, which lives and flourishes only where Christ reigns. Love works not for profit nor reward, yet God has ordained that great gain shall be the certain result of every labor of love. It is diffusive in its nature and quiet in its operation, yet strong and mighty in its purpose to overcome great evils. It is melting and transforming in its influence and will take hold of the lives of the sinful and affect their hearts when every other means has proven unsuccessful. Wherever the power of intellect, of authority, or of force is employed and love is not manifestly present, the affections and will of those whom we seek to reach assume a defensive, repelling position and their strength of resistance is increased. So it's like coercive power. Remember law of liberty? When you violate liberty, you start to coerce. You, you incite rebellion. They want to oppose you. Pure love is simple in its operation and is distinct from any other principle of action. The love of influence and the desire for the esteem of others may produce a well-ordered life and frequently blameless conversation. Self-respect may lead us to avoid the appearance of evil. A selfish heart may perform generous acts, acknowledge the present truth, and express humility and affection in outward manner, yet the motives may be deceptive and impure. The actions that flow from such a heart may be destitute of the savor of life, destitute of the savor of life, and the fruits of true holiness being destitute of the principles of pure love. 
Love should be cherished and cultivated for its influence is divine. What do you hear being described here? What is the power? Is it something more than sentiment? Is this love something operational? Is it something built into reality? Well, as I was reading and contemplating all these things this week, I remember a conversation we had at the beginning of the quarter over quantum mechanics and quantum entanglement. And that all things in the universe are connected through invisible strings. And that we can affect at great distances others if we have goodwill and love. And remember the the science and the DNA experiments that were done where uh, Dr. Um, McCready and his colleagues had individuals trained to focus their attention with love and goodwill and they took human DNA from placentas and they had people focus on the DNA and either focusing to have the DNA um, become wound tighter or to to become looser in its confirmation. And they could measure this with ultraviolet light. So the more tightly wound, it would absorb more ultraviolet light. The more loose, it would absorb less ultraviolet light. And when they focused with love and goodwill, with the intention of having the DNA conform more tightly, they were able to measure a 25% change in the DNA confirmation with this mental intention. This is where it gets interesting. When the individuals would generate the same feeling of love and goodwill but not focus the attention on changing the DNA, there was no configuration change in the DNA. And when they focused with intention to change it, focused to change it, but they did not have love and goodwill generated in their heart, there was no DNA confirmation change. In a follow-on study to determine if this was perhaps some general electromagnetic field, because your body produces an electromagnetic field, we can read these with the EKG and EEG and so forth, Um, or something more focused, researchers took three vials of DNA, brought them in the room, and had the individuals focused on changing the confirmation of two out of the three, but not the third, and they were all side by side. And sure enough, 25% confirmation change in two, but not the third. Finally, researchers had five, in five different experiments, all repeated, in which the DNA vials were more than half a mile away from the participants, and they had them focus with love and goodwill on conforming the change of the DNA. They could measure a change. They didn't have to be in the presence of it. A half a mile away, it did the same thing. And if this is freaky to you guys, remember this quote from Evangelism, page 93. It's an L.Y. quote. The striking features of divine operations. Whose operations? Divine is the accomplishment of the greatest work that can be done in our world by very simple means. It is God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part, a whole as a wheel within a wheel, working with the entire harmony. He moves upon human forces, causing his spirit to touch invisible cords and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. This is string theory. This is quantum mechanics right here. That we are connected. That your prayers will be effective when they're accompanied with a heart of love and goodwill. But prayers from a selfish heart are not effective, not because God doesn't hear what you're saying, but because the avenue, the the design of God's kingdom, which is the design of love, is being obstructed in your actual character and heart. Selfishness obstructs the flow of love. Isn't this fascinating stuff? Okay, and I think as we come more and more, now think about this, this power of God, as we come more and more in harmony with them, as our hearts are cleansed, as we d- divest ourselves of selfishness and surrender to self, then more and more of God's love flows through us. We become more, and God's love is the life energy of the universe. We read that a moment ago. And more of that energy that flows through us, guess what? 
we come off the mountain with faces like Moses. There's an energy that actually... Remember Stephen as he is being stoned. Father, don't lay this to their account. How selfish was he being? Selfishness is gone. What was his face doing? It says that face of that of an angel. What If you've read some of Ellen White's writing about the end trouble, times of trouble, right before the end, those who are saved, what she say their faces do? Their faces light up and radiate like Moses coming off the mountain. And the wicked can't stand to look at them. Why? I think this is because we are, we are removing the obstructions in our own neurobiology and bioelectric organ, organism that God has constructed us. We're coming more into harmony with him and his life-giving energy can flow through us. Fascinating stuff. Well, we had some more interesting things in the lesson, but we're out of time. So I'll leave you with that to contemplate and think about the, the message of the end time that is to go to the world. Are you able to put the pieces together that you can go out and you can articulate the three angels through that new setting of design law and not get stuck in that old metaphor? Can you take the symbolism of sanctuary and can you interpret the symbolisms to reality so you can describe what's really happening inside the inner being of God's spirit temple that he built without human hands? And be prepared for opposition from leadership that has a tradition, and when you upset the tradition, they will want to throw you out, and you might have to start your home church like Paul did. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is infinite in majesty and power, but infinite in love, and your design is a universe of love, and that the only way you can restore your universe is back in harmony with your design, and that's why you're so patient to win us to trust so that we can open the heart, experience your spirit to get rid of the fear, the insecurity, the self-centeredness so that your love may flow through us, bring us and settle us intellectually and spiritually that we can't be moved so that the final message might go forward. The winds will be loosened and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.